This week, we reach into uncharted territory. Games on actual modern hardware. Hello again. Welcome back once again to the Gaming Off the Beaten Path podcast. JD here. Now, I don't play a whole lot of modern games. They generally don't interest me. I mean, I have a podcast and vlog about old video games. So, you know, it's pretty obvious which ones I prefer. But every once in a while, something new catches my eye. I do occasionally review newer games, but it's usually because they fall into my lap rather than because I seek them out. Typically, the ones that I do play are from the seventh generation. Now, this is, I actually did a, a, a blog post about this a while ago. This is a podcast for a different day. You know, what constitutes the modern era? To me, anything seventh generation to current is really more the modern era of gaming. And I, I guess, you know, PS3, 360, Wii, I play those games fairly frequently. But anything after that, I, I don't usually touch all that often. And... Even, you know, because even those games, even though they're quote-unquote modern, um, they're 15 years old. Some of them are pushing 20 at this point. And I also kind of want to give the caveat, too, that I'm not talking about games that are done in an old-school style on purpose. We're talking about stuff like Chained Echoes, which I covered, Mega Man 10, things like that. Those are technically modern games, but they exist on a completely different plane from the stuff that I'm talking about. Which brings me to Yakuza, Like a Dragon. So, a lot of people were really, really excited when this game was announced, and I was not one of them. So, the announcement of a new game in a franchise known for being an open-world, third-person action game barely registered for me. Um, I think I've kind of made this clear that I like open-world games. I'm just really sick and tired of there being so many of them, open-world kind of like action games, whether they're third or first-person. So, the Yakuza games do date back to the 6th generation. The first one, I think, appeared on the PS2. I'm not sure if it was on the Xbox as well. Um, and I personally have never played a Yakuza game before. Um, so, I was never really interested. I was not a fan of the whole super edgy, cool, plays the bad guy thing that GTA kind of started, or at least very highly popularized. Like, even when I do, like, I play, like, Fallout or whatever, I'm always, like, a goody-two-shoes, you know? I'm always on the light side in, in KOTOR or anything like that. So, to me, Yakuza was just a continuation of that trend, or it seemed like it from, you know, the view I had. When the game first came out, I kind of dismissed it as GTA in Japan, and then I ignored the series for the entirety of its existence, figuring it would never interest me. But then, we had a plot twist. You see, Like a Dragon was not going to be yet another open-world action game, but a turn-based JRPG. And immediately, I knew I had to play it. You're telling me there's a turn-based RPG by a AAA developer, Sega, on a modern console not set in some fanservice-infested chibi hell? Sign me up right now. There's a lot of things I could find issue with with the game, but there was far, far more good than bad, and I think a lot of the issues I had did come more from my lack of familiarity with the series and kind of my personal issues with modern games in general that I don't think most people actually think are a problem. So, 
Yakuza Like a Dragon was a great experience, even if it had some aspects I wasn't a fan of. And, you know, it... If there's any justice in this world, this will lead to a spin-off series of turn-based Yakuza RPGs that get bigger and better each time. Now, this is going to be a part one. So usually when I do RPGs on the blog, at least with written content, I try to split them up part one and part two because they tend to be longer. They're more of a time investment on my part. There's more to talk about than there is with, you know, say, a three-hour long action game. Um, I tried to squeeze, when I reviewed Chained Echoes, I tried to squeeze both of those together into one podcast and just skipped, you know, did something else for one of the weeks that it ran on the blog. And that episode ran almost to the entirety of my limit, and it was too long. So I'm going to split it up here. So this is going to be part one. We're going to be talking about the characters, the story, the presentation, you know, the general kind of softer aspects of the game as opposed to the hard aspects the you know the gameplay the combat system etc that'll be for next week but for now we're gonna get into the story which puts you in control of Ichiban Kasuga who is a low-ranking member of the relatively small Arakawa family Yakuza family Ichiban's an orphan he was raised in a soap land um Looking up what a soap land is kind of got me down a little bit of a Japanese uh, culture rabbit hole. Um, so just to keep this podcast PG, we'll just say that a soap land's a bathhouse. Let's go with that. So anyway, Ichiban was raised by proprietor Yuro Katsuga and various ladies that worked there. So as a teenager... He begins lashing out, he starts having behavioral problems, he's frequently getting in trouble, getting in fights, getting stuck over his head, and just when it looks like he is written one final check that his backside can't catch, he's saved from death by Masumi Arakawa, the patriarch of the Arakawa family, and fabled assassin. So, feeling he owes the man his life, he begins trying to serve and then eventually serving the Arakawa family, which leads us to the start of the actual game, New Year's Eve 2001. He has a, the two, Arakawa and Ichiban, have a great time celebrating, and after a night of fun, Ichiban wakes up to a call from his patriarch, who is very melancholy, and asks him to come to the family office immediately. What was supposed to be a night of celebration and drinking has turned deadly. A dispute has led family captain Joe Sawashiro to kill a high-ranking member of the Tojo clan, the group that Arakawa reports to. This is the patriarch in a tough spot, because he knows that if his captain goes down for this murder, it's going to result in swift, brutal retaliation from his superiors. So, he asks the low-ranking Ichiban to take the fall. Still feeling he owes Arakawa his life from the incident as a teenager, he agrees, finding himself sentenced to 18 years in prison. Ichi does his time, anticipating that one day he'll receive, he'll once again see his friends, his brothers, his Yakuza family, and he looks forward to that release day, where, as is tradition for Yakuza members, they're picked up in a big kind of like, you know, almost like ceremony, not ceremonial, but, you know, kind of gesture by their family patriarch. His day finally arrives, and Ichiban is shocked to find that no one from the Arakawa family is waiting for him at all. All he finds is a disgraced detective, Koichi Adachi, who wants to ask him a few questions. 
Ichiban's resistant at first, but then Adachi kind of tells him that his home, Kamurocho, is much different now, that his family's not what it used to be, the Yakuza are much weaker than they've ever been, and Ichiban refuses to believe this at first, but upon his return home, he finds Adachi-san's words to be quite true. The soap land he was raised in is shuttered, the Arakawa family office is empty, and worst of all, Arakawa himself seems to have defected to the Tojo clan's bitter rivals, the Omi Alliance. With Adachi's help, Ichi does find a way to get in front of Arakawa, hoping to get answers. Instead, he catches a bullet to the chest. Wait, he wakes up two days later at a homeless encampment, nursed back to health by a vagrant named Yunanba. So, with nowhere to go, and no leads aside from a bloodied yen note in his pocket, Ichiban sets out once again to find his former patriarch to figure out just what happened. But it's not going to be easy. For one, Ichiban's flat broke. He's been in prison for the last 18 years, and, you know, he doesn't know what's going on. All he's got are the clothes on his back. Yokohama is a new world. It's very different from the social politics from his home in Kamurocho. The balance of power there is maintained by what's known as the Wall of Muscle, the Ejin Three, a tense alliance between the Chinese Liu Mang Mafia, the Korean Komijul, and the Serio Yakuza clan. An activist group called Bleach Japan is also uh, very influential. They march in the streets protesting the nation's gray zones, where authorities kind of look the other way on certain crimes. Before it's all over, Ichiban will find himself embroiled in a battle that connects all of this madness to one of Japan's top political figures. He'll also learn a lot about his past, and he will figure out the true nature of where he came from, who his parents were, and where why he ended up in the situation that he did. Ugh, okay, that was probably the longest plot synopsis that I've ever done. And that right there represents both the best and worst thing about Like a Dragon, and in my opinion, kind of modern games in general. On one hand, you've got a deep, complex story filled with compelling personal quests, political intrigue, uh, tense underworld standoffs, and all sorts of fun stuff. Some of it comes off as a bit cheesy, but I've been told that's actually kind of par for the course for the Yakuza series. Again, I've never played any of them before. Um... Although, had I known it didn't take itself so seriously, I probably would have started playing it earlier. The plot's fun and kind of deep, but it's really the characters that carry this title. Ichiban might be my new favorite RPG protagonist of all time. He's that good. He's quirky, but he's intense. He's just so relatable and likable. Um, it's impossible not to root for him as an underdog, you really feel for him during the game's darker moments, and you laugh alongside him in you know during um, it, its more lighthearted ones. It the game does a great job of making sure you know he's a very serious character while also giving him humanizing traits and interests that make him relatable. I find the fact that he's a diehard Dragon Quest fan to be absolutely hilarious. Like this kind of it, it plays into the whole why this is a turn-based game thing i just i thought it was funny the supporting cast is great too you've got the beaten down but resilient nanba the jovial and often drunk adachi the tough but always supportive seiko chan and a lot of other characters that saying who they are would kind of give away the plot so i'm not going to but they're all pretty cool the villains are strong too Ryo Aoki is the epitome of a smarmine politician that's clearly more interested in building his own power than he is actually helping his constituents. 
His funky kume is an obnoxious pest that you just want to see get what's coming to him. There's other great antagonists as well. Though some of them do actually go on to become friends uh, as the story progresses. And as I mentioned previously, I've never played any of these games. A lot of the big character reveals fell flat to me because of this. I didn't realize who some of these guys were that show up later in the, in the game um, until I, you know, I, I looked them up. But I can't knock the game for that because I'm sure longtime Yakuza fans were like pumped to see some of their old favorites. I won't spoil who's who. But that does happen. So, the problem with all this is that it just takes such a long time to set up. It's largely down to the cinematic nature of modern games, something I've always had mixed feelings about. There are so, so many cutscenes at the start with very little gameplay for the first few hours, like three to five hours. The game doesn't really start in earnest until Ichiban gets to Yokohama, and that doesn't happen for, like I said, three to five hours. You don't have a complete party until Seiko joins, probably about ten hours in. Aoki, who's essentially the, the primary antagonist, isn't introduced till hour 15, and that was with minimal time spent on side quests and extras. We're going to get to the side quests and extras during the gameplay portion next week, but there's a lot of that. So... The game's constantly introducing new characters, constantly introducing new entities, and we're talking like 20, 30, even 40 hours in. I always found this confusing, and it leads to sensory overload, especially as, like I said, I didn't recognize who many of these series stalwarts are. Um, and again, it makes it difficult to develop a character that you introduced three hours before the end of the game, or a threat that you introduced two hours before the game's going to be over. You spend a lot of time being led on as to just who the villains are going to be. The Serio clan, the Lumang, the Komichu, Bleach Japan, Aoki, and you know a host of others look like they're going to take that mantle, and all of a sudden, the script just arbitrarily flips. In fact, many characters who are seemingly antagonists end up becoming friends on just like the drop of a dime. Like It's not like eventually they learn to trust you or you learn to trust them. It's just like... We've spent the last two hours fighting each other, and people end up dying, and now we're best buds? I, I, I don't know. That, that happens a lot in this game. Um, I also don't think I've ever seen so many MacGuffins packed into a single game. Like, ever. Uh, just for the record, a MacGuffin is a plot device that exists solely to, you know, move the plot along without actually being important. And that happens way too frequently here. Um, so much of what you do feels like it's important for like a second and then it's just never bought up again. It further slows down the pace of the game and makes you feel like you're constantly running into dead ends. Um, and you do run into a lot, a lot of dead story ends here, um, which I found to be a little bit off-putting. At the end of the day, it all still works because the writing's so strong, the characters are so compelling, but it was definitely noticeable. Overall presentation is fairly strong um graphics are mediocre uh that sounds odd coming from somebody that plays mostly games that are like 30 years old but like a dragon looks just kind of okay for an eighth gen game the sense say it looks bad though and i wish the character models were a bit more expressive their faces are very like kind of wooden and stiff um the areas you visit in the game all look pretty good ijincho yokohama 
Satinbori and Kamurocho all feel really alive and lived in. Exploring them feels kind of like you're actually walking through a giant, bustling Japanese city. Uh, the best part of the presentation, though, is the voice acting. Everyone involved does a great job, and they really bring their characters to life. It's definitely... I've kind of ragged on modern games, but this is definitely one that uh, thing that I prefer about modern games. Voice acting has come such a long way all these years um, from some of just the truly awful, awful voice acting from the sixth generation to this. It's night and day. Um, this may be my new number one for the best voice acting of all time. That's whether you're playing in Japanese with the English subtitles, or just Japanese if you happen to speak the language, uh, or with the English dub. The Japanese is great, but Japanese voice acting in Japanese-made games is often great. Uh, The English dub is a cut above what we would normally see here, even in a modern game. This is... You know, this is a a really awesome English dub. The voice actors are really great. Part of it's the strong writing, but the actors deliver their lines with such conviction that they actually sound like real human beings. Uh, This sounds like a weird thing to to call out, but conversations in Like a Dragon are some of the most realistic I've ever heard. They actually feel like conversations between two humans and not written texts for video game characters to speak. Uh, this is something that all stre- t- like types of media struggle with, I think. Even conversations in big-time blockbuster movies can sometimes seem forced, but here, they're flowing, they're natural, all the voice actors do a great job, Ichiban's might be the best, his inflection, you know, and really helps the character's personality come through, but they all do really well. So, at the end of the day, Yakuza Like a Dragon demonstrated both the best and worst aspects of modern gaming. On one hand, it's extremely cinematic, almost to the point where it lacks actual gameplay at some points. I don't typically like games like that. They feel too much like movies. Although, I don't think we're quite in that territory here. This isn't like an indie walking simulator, you know, or like a visual novel game kind of thing. On the other, it's got a lot of modern amenities that make games easier to digest they make them easier to play, um, even for us veteran gamers. And perhaps more importantly, the story doesn't get bogged down by bad translation or silly voice acting or stupid, you know, comp- like text. And that has always been a positive of modern games. It was kind of the best of both worlds and the worst of both worlds uh, for story and presentation. Because you can definitely tell the people that made this kind of did so... A, not not as much as a, of of a lovely letter as something like Chain Echoes was, where it was truly aping old school RPGs. This was more like a, you know, they loved these these old those old school games, and this was a modern take on it. So that's gonna do it for the story. Uh, no score yet, um, because we will get to that after the gameplay is over. Cause uh, even though I'm a big story driven, big character driven guy, you know. Gameplay is important, too, even in a JRPG. So, how did the gameplay in Like a Dragon fare? Well, you're going to have to stop by next week to hear about that. But until then, thanks for coming this week. Hope to see you again for part two next week. But until then, happy gaming!